Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you and enjoy the following message. Life is a long series of choices. Few of those choices are big, but many of those choices are small decisions that we make every day. We tend to focus on the big choices in life, and understandably so, but in the end, it's both the big choices that we make and the small choices that we make every day after those big choices that really determine the kind of life that we're going to lead and the kind of legacy that we're going to leave. So where you go to school is important, but it's not more important than the study decisions that you make every day for years after that decision. Whom you marry is important, but it's the daily decisions that you make to love and serve your spouse that determine the kind of marriage that you're going to have. And which career path you take is important, but it's less important than the decisions that you make every single day to honor the Lord by working hard as unto Him at whatever job it is that you take. Life is a long series of choices. And at the end of our lives, we're going to hear a verdict from the Lord about our lives. And that verdict is going to be the direct result of the choices that we've made, both big and small, over the course of our lives. In Joshua chapter 23, we learn that Joshua's earthly life was coming to a close. And here in chapter 24, we have his final inspired words to the people of Israel. And you notice here at the outset of 24 that he gathers this time not only the leaders like he did back in chapter 23, but he gathers all the tribes of Israel. And they present themselves before the Lord. They're assembling not just to hear from Joshua, the man that has led them so faithfully for all of these years, but to hear from God himself. So in verse 2, Joshua speaks as a prophet He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And over the next 12 verses, God reminds Israel that he chose them and he blessed them. So in verses 3 through 5, he reminds the people that when Abraham was serving idols, God called him. He promised him to bless him and to make a great nation out of him and his descendants, even though he was well advanced in years and didn't have a single child of his own. Friends, this is remarkable. And many of us are so familiar with this story that it doesn't seem that way anymore. But just consider again that Abraham was not seeking God. He was not a particularly righteous man, as his choices would later reveal. And yet... As an act of sheer grace, 
Out of his great love, God chose Abraham. He revealed himself to him and promised to bless him. And then we see that God gave him Isaac, the son that he promised. He's born to Abraham when he is 100 years old. Isaac fathered Esau and Jacob, but God chose Jacob rather than Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. But Jacob was blessed in spite of his own sin and failures because God chose to bless him. He and his children went down to Egypt where they were enslaved for 400 years. And so God sent Moses and Aaron to command Pharaoh to let the people go. But Pharaoh refused. And so he plagued Egypt and brought their ancestors out. In verses 6 through 10, God rescues his chosen people from Pharaoh and his army. He parts the Red Sea for the people to pass through, but then he drowns the pursuers. God brings them into the land of the Amorites who fight against Israel, but God defeated them even after Balak hired Balaam, the prophet, to curse them. Instead of cursing them, God caused Balaam to bless Israel because no one can curse what God has blessed and no one can bless what God has cursed. That's a very important principle to remember. In an age where church leaders are blessing all kinds of things that God has cursed, that he specifically condemns in his word, that is so important to remember. Nobody can curse what God has blessed and nobody can bless what God has cursed. In verses 11 and 12, we pick up the story where the book of Joshua begins. He stops the floodwaters of the Jordan River so that Israel can cross over into the promised land on dry ground, and then he fights for Israel, and they defeat every king and every army that comes against them. He says there in that verse that they did not win these victories through their swords or through their bows, but through the work of the Lord. So here's where this first part ends, verse 13. This is the summary. Take a look at that verse again. God says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. From beginning to end, Israel's story, their history, is the story of God graciously choosing them and then delivering them and then fighting for them and blessing them. It is a story of his magnificent grace from start to finish. And so church, I want you to reflect on your own story this morning. And I want you to think about how you view your own story and how God has worked in your life. Were you searching for God? Abraham wasn't. God chose him. He revealed himself to him and then promised to bless him. Did you and I deserve to be chosen and blessed by God? Neither Abraham nor his descendants did. They did nothing to earn God's favor before or during or after the fact that God chose them. In fact, they made many sinful choices, and yet God did not reject him in his wonderful grace and mercy. Friends, God has chosen and blessed every believer in spite of our past, present, and future sins and errors and mistakes. 
our salvation is entirely a work of God's grace from start to finish. See, that understanding has to form the foundation for the way that we respond to God and for the way that we relate to him on a daily basis. The question is, how should we respond to a God who has chosen us and blessed us so freely? That's why Joshua begins this final speech, this final address to Israel with 13 verses, nearly half the chapter, simply recounting what God has graciously done for them in choosing them and blessing them. How should we respond to a God who has so graciously chosen and blessed us? Let's pick up here in verse 14. Take a look there with me. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So in light of all that God has done for Israel, he gives the people two commands, fear the Lord and serve the Lord. So first, the people are to fear the Lord. To fear God is to conceive of him as he really is. Not as we would like him to be, not as we imagine him to be, but as he really is. Perfectly holy, dwelling in unapproachable light, all-powerful, all-knowing, the standard of true justice. It is to conceive of God as he really is and then to live in light of that reality. A right understanding of God's attributes leads us to view him with reverence and awe and wonder. Those who fear God do not treat him lightly or approach him casually. So first we are to fear the Lord, to conceive of him as he really is. The second command is that we are to serve the Lord in sincerity and in faithfulness. That word sincerity suggests that God is after much more than mere outward conformity to his law than behavioral modifications and just trying to live outwardly in a different way, that that's not going to suffice. Now, we know that God requires obedience. That is clear enough from the past two chapters. And if you remember in chapter 22, that God had commanded the people to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. That is repeated again in chapter 23. We understand that God requires obedience. And part of obedience is behaving in the ways that he has commanded us to behave. But church, that obedience should be sincere. It should come from the heart. So think about Joshua's charge in chapter 23, verse 11. You can look back there if you want to again. That verse that we focused on last week, be very careful, therefore, to what? To love the Lord your God. We must serve him, that is, obey his commands from the heart. So it should be sincere, but we should also serve the Lord, he says, in faithfulness. And that word is explained by the next sentence in verse 14, that second part of the verse, 
Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So it might seem surprising to you that Joshua has to say this to the people at this point. But we have to remember that idolatry is a temptation for everyone at all times and in all places. These people had seen the Lord perform incredible miracles, and so it may seem amazing, unbelievable, that they would still be tempted to worship idols. But recall that the people who saw God part the Red Sea and drown the Egyptian army, who were fed with manna from heaven and water from rocks, that those same people fashioned a couple of golden calves and then bowed down to them and worshiped them. These very same people. We also have to remember that along with the people of Israel, Rahab and her whole family have joined themselves to the people of Israel, not to mention the entire tribe of the Gibeonites who were not originally part of God's people. And previously, they had worshipped all kinds of false gods and idols. So faithfulness meant putting away these false gods that are still among them There are other translations that say, throw away the gods of your fathers. That is what we're to do. We're to put away those idols, to put away those false gods, to throw them away permanently, not temporarily, but forever. That's what faithfulness means. And so that brings us to the climactic challenge. The verse that is displayed on coffee cups and living room walls round the world. Verse 15, take a look there. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Israel needed to make a choice. They could choose to serve any or all of the false gods from beyond the river or back in Egypt, or they could choose to serve the Lord. The one thing that they could not do is choose to do both of those things, to serve any false god or gods and the one true Lord of the universe. They could not do that. And what I want you to see is that Joshua's family had already made up their minds. They had already decided, no matter what the rest of the Israelites did, they were going to serve the Lord. I want you to notice that Joshua didn't sit back and wait for others to make their decision first. He didn't wait to see what was popular. He didn't take a vote to see which God or gods might be the most popular, he said very clearly, no matter what, me and my family, we are going to serve the Lord. They made their decision, and now the rest of the Israelites were going to have to make their choice. You see, friends, nobody backs into serving the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness. You don't end up there by accident. It is a conscious choice, and it is a decision that will cost you. I want you to take a look on the screen at Luke chapter 9. Luke records this. 
as Jesus and his disciples were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Friends, these responses are remarkable because ancient Jewish rabbis were just like our modern gurus on Twitter and YouTube and the TED Talk circuit. Their whole goal was to build up a huge following. So when people walk up to Jesus and they say to him, I will follow you wherever you go, you would expect Jesus to say, great, be sure to like and share and click the subscribe button. But he doesn't. Instead of begging people to follow him, instead of lowering the bar so that it was as easy as possible to follow him and to come into the kingdom of God, he tells them straight up that following him is going to be costly. You see, fearing God and serving him is a choice that we have to make. And it is a difficult choice because it's never going to be popular and it's always going to be costly. I don't know how many of you have watched or are watching The Chosen. It took me a while to finally decide to start watching it. But I am unashamed to say that I have cried in every single episode that I have seen. Towards the end of season one, Jesus walks by Matthew's tax booth and he calls him to follow him. And Matthew goes to leave the tax booth, and Gaius, who is the fictional Roman soldier that is assigned to guard him and the tax money that Rome has collected, he basically asks Matthew, he says, you're going to give all of this up? Your wealth, your power, the protection of Rome, the opportunity for advancement within the Roman kingdom, you're going to give all of this up to follow that teacher? I won't spoil it for you and tell you whether or not Matthew follows Jesus. <laughs> but that scene depicts the cost of discipleship. We all have to choose. Every one of us has to make a choice. And listen to me, nobody gets by without making a choice. Even the decision to sit on the fence about Jesus is a choice. We all choose. And so Joshua tells the people, you need to choose this day who you're going to serve. Either the one true God or any other God or gods. All right, so Joshua's challenged the people. Let's see how they respond. Verse 16. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, 
and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So the people respond to Joshua's challenge by essentially saying, after all God has done for us, it would be crazy for us not to serve him. So that's what we're going to do. He is our God. But just take a look at how Joshua responds. Verse 19, look there. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Can you imagine? The people just said, we will serve the Lord. We will choose to serve him above all of these other gods. He is our God. You would expect Joshua, just like you would expect Jesus, you would expect him to be like, that's great. I'm so proud of you guys. I've taught you well. But what does he say? He says, you can't serve God. He's holy. He's jealous. He's not going to forgive your sins or transgressions. Now, he says that, and you're like, now, hang on a minute here. That seems to contradict everything else that the Bible talks about, God's inexhaustible grace and mercy. So we have to read verse 19, not by itself, but in context. And verse 20 explains, take a look there. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. So in Exodus chapter 34, when God is speaking to Moses, he reveals himself to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He forgives everyone who comes to him in repentant faith. But if you forsake him and you don't come to him in repentant faith, then God will not forgive you. He won't forgive you because he can't forgive you because you refuse to humble yourself and come before him and ask. The only person that will not be forgiven by God is the person who refuses to humble himself or herself and go before the Lord and ask, and ask in repentant faith. Take a look at 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, it's conditional. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So how will the people respond to such a direct challenge? Let's pick up now in verse 21. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. 
And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Even after that direct challenge, the people are adamant that they are going to serve the Lord. So Joshua tells them, and this wording is very important, you are witnesses against yourselves. You are witnesses against yourselves because you've made your choice and declared your intentions. And the people all say what? We are witnesses. So friends, this passage is instructive for us when we think about church discipline for holding professing believers accountable to obey God's word. We don't hold unbelievers accountable to obey God's word because they haven't declared their intention to serve the Lord. But anybody who has made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and been baptized is saying, I intend to follow Jesus, and I expect you, the church, to hold me accountable to my intention. That's why Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 5. Take a look. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So you see, when we as believers go to other professing Christians and we hold them accountable to obey God's word, and they say to us, who are you to judge me? Who gave you the right to judge me? We can say, God did. God did. And you did. When you professed faith in Jesus Christ, when you were baptized, you became a witness against yourself. You were saying that you wanted to be held accountable to fear the Lord and to serve him. That's what Joshua is saying. He's telling the Israelites that their profession makes them witnesses against themselves that they have chosen to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. So Joshua commands them once more to put away the foreign gods among them and to incline their hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And you can see that language is just like last week, where we see that the focus is not merely external obedience, but instead is love for God from the heart. It is sincere that leads us then to obey him. And so Joshua takes all of this, he writes it down in the book of the law, and then he sets up another stone because of course he does. 
This is the seventh monument in the land. It's like, where is there not a monument? And I think that's the point. He's put up these things everywhere so they are reminders and witnesses of the people's covenant with the Lord. The Israelites made their choice. But friends, as they should have known and as we certainly know, the decision to serve the Lord is not a decision that we make once. It's a decision that we make over and over again every single day of our lives. That's why Joshua erected the stone memorial. And that's why out of all 95 theses that Martin Luther wrote and nailed to the door of the church, this is the very first one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We make the choice not just once, but every single day to serve the Lord. Verse 29. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance for the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. What the narrator is doing in this final section of the book is he's showing us that this is the end of an era. The bones of Joseph, which he commanded to be brought out of Egypt to the promised land 500 years earlier, those are brought out of the land and buried there. He is representative of that generation of the patriarchs. He's the son of Jacob, who is the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. That generation is gone. And then there's Eleazar, the son of Aaron, who's representative of that Exodus generation, who saw God's wondrous deeds in Egypt and at the Red Sea and against the Amorites. He also dies and is buried in the promised land. And then finally, there's Joshua, who dies at 110 years old after a lifetime of faithful service of leading the people of God. And what I want you to see here at the end is what he is called. At the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, he is called Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord. The only other person to this point that's been called the servant of the Lord is Moses. And Moses was not called the servant of the Lord until he died. And that's what I want you to see. Joshua, at the end of his life, is called the servant of the Lord because that's when the verdict gets passed. The verdict isn't passed when we graduate. It's not passed when you get married. It's not passed when you have kids or your kids finally go to school. It's not passed when they leave home. It's not passed when you retire. The verdict on your life and on my life doesn't get passed until the end of our lives, until our lives are over. 
that's when God will render the only verdict that matters. So the question for us today is, what kind of verdict can we expect to hear? Can we expect to hear, like Joshua and like Moses before him, and like so many other brothers and sisters who have lived, well done, good and faithful servant? Or, despite our profession, will we spend our days serving ourselves and the false idols of the world and here along with so many other men and women? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. In the end, God will render a verdict, a true and final verdict over our lives. He will separate the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous. Some will go on to eternal life and many will go on to eternal punishment. And so if you're here today and you haven't made the choice to fear the Lord and to serve him in sincerity and faithfulness, then I urge you this morning to make that choice today. And maybe you heard this sermon and you're thinking, looking at those first 13 verses, God may have been good to Israel. He may have blessed them, but he has not been good to me. And friends, I won't pretend to know what you've been through in your life, but what I do know about you is that God created you for his own glory. I know that he is perfectly holy. And I know that he will hold you accountable for your life, no matter what you think about him. He is not indifferent to your suffering. He is the one who allowed it. And more than that, he is the one who can identify with your suffering perfectly because his son Jesus came and suffered for you. He lived an entire life of suffering before he finally went to the cross to suffer unjustly, accused of things that he never did, punished for crimes that he did not commit. He was executed as an enemy of the state and as an enemy of the nation of Israel. And he was executed in your place for your sin. He did all of that so you could be forgiven, so you could be counted righteous, so that you could be adopted into God's family once and for all, so that you could know an eternity of joy without any more suffering. But you must get rid of the false gods in your life. You have to repent and turn away from all of the things that are vying for your affection, for your time and energy and effort and money. You have to turn away from all of those things that you have given first place in your heart and your mind and your life to. And you must turn to and receive Jesus Christ by faith. It will be the costliest decision that you ever make. But it will also be the best decision that you ever make because you'll save your soul and have the opportunity to look forward to an eternity of joy. So please, if you have not done so, choose Christ today. If you're already a follower of Jesus, then the book of Joshua should bring you great encouragement because it foreshadows the great things that are to come for God's people. See, Joshua is a type of Christ 
who led the bone-weary people of Israel out of this nomadic life in the wilderness where they had no home to a place of rest. And the promised land, that place of rest, that good land flowing with milk and honey is a shadow of the new heavens and the new earth that God has promised to every believer. And so until Christ returns, we are to think of ourselves as sojourners and exiles on this earth, longing for our true and lasting home in the same way that the Israelites longed to finally get into the land that God promised. We have no lasting home here, but God is making all things new. And one day we will finally be home if, like Joshua, we persevere to the end in faith. God has so graciously chosen and blessed us. May he grant us faith to choose, to fear, and to serve him in sincerity and faithfulness all the days of our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for the six wonderful months that we've been able to spend studying the book of Joshua, where you have revealed yourself to be all-powerful and all-knowing, where you have revealed yourself to be the one who pursues and chooses and redeems and saves your people for your own glory where we see the wonderful blessing of godly leaders and also the dire consequences that result when those leaders don't follow you and lead according to your word. We see the wonderful blessing of being a part of the people of God and yet the great strife and disunity and discord and sin that results from not listening to you and not putting you and others first in our lives. God, we see a picture of this perfect rest that you have promised to us that we should hope and long for. And so we pray this morning that you would teach us today to rest in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone and to look forward to that time and that place where we will enjoy perfect rest, perfect joy, an eternity of meaningful work and service and worship in community with other believers. Teach us, God, to long for our true home. Thank you, God, for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net.